today's episode of Forward Guidance was taken from a live stream I did with geopolitical analyst Jacob Shapiro about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We went live on Thursday, February 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to get uh, forthcoming BlockWorks live streams, forward guidance live streams, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. So make sure you do that. And I hope you find Jacob's analysis valuable. All right. I'm Jack Farley, Forward Guidance. We have a lot to talk about. So I'm going to welcome our guest, Jacob Shapiro. Jacob, we have a lot to talk about. Russia has invaded Ukraine, um, not just bombing the capital Kiev, but uh, you know, military troops are going in. There's active infighting. We just were watching Boris Johnson announcing a series of sanctions uh, and President Joe Biden announcing a series of questions Broad strokes. Uh, what what do you make of this? What's what's your what's your broad strokes? Man, my broad strokes. So when we spoke two days ago, Jack, I mean, I was still thinking that um, that it was possible and even likely that what Russia was doing was that it was trying to create leverage through its military deployments to reach some kind of political settlement that it found advantageous in Kiev. Uh, it turns out that is absolutely not what Russia was planning to do. Um, it seems like Russia actually decided what it was doing a long time ago and that a lot of what it's been putting out at the diplomatic level and the political level was really just for show and that Russia decided long ago what it decided, uh, long ago decided what it wanted to do. Uh, what's happened in the last 24 hours, and I, I want to caution your listeners, the fog of war is a real thing. So a lot of the reports that we're getting right now, they will turn out to be unreliable. They will be this, um, sourced from... Um, hysterics and panic and all the sorts of things that happen when your country gets attacked. So you really have to parse through those developments and see what's actually going on. What we know for sure is that Putin said he is beginning a military operation in Ukraine. He said it was to protect Donbass, but he also made some pretty big sweeping comments about what he thinks Ukraine did. He thinks Ukraine is committing genocide in Eastern Ukraine. It's not. Uh, he said that Ukraine wants nuclear weapons. It doesn't. Um, he also said that he was going to demilitarize and denazify um, the Ukrainian government. And that's a big deal because that's Putin basically telegraphing to you that he does not see the Ukrainian government as legitimate. Now, shortly after those comments, Russia began attacking Ukraine on a number of different axes. Um, it began really trying to degrade Ukraine's ability to defend itself from Russian troops. And that's still the stage of the operation that we're in now. Um, there are Russian troops that have crossed from Belarus into Ukraine, about four hours drive north of Kiev. Uh, they've made some headway via Crimea into Ukraine, parts of eastern Ukraine. You've seen some troop movements. But we are still at the very initial phases of what looks to be a maximalist military campaign, whose eventual goal, I think, will be to depose the Zelensky government and to install a pro-Russian or a Russia-friendly government in Kiev. There's really no other explanation for what we're seeing from Russia and from Putin at this point. So as you can see on this uh, map here, these are forces actively uh, um, going into uh, uh, Ukraine, crossing the Belarusian uh, border. Uh, how quickly do you think the Russian military can defeat the Ukrainian army? And in my question that I just asked, was the, was the presupposition that Russia would defeat Ukraine? And, you know, is that accurate? You know, Russia obviously has a, a much more powerful military. How long do you think can the 
Ukrainian military withstand a, a Russian invasion? And what are the options left to the Ukrainian leaders? Yeah, so first of all, this map that you've put up here, it's a very helpful map, and I believe I recognize it. I believe it's Michael Kaufman posted it on Twitter. Uh, I should also say, Michael Kaufman has been dead on correct about this the entire time, and I've gone at him a bit for being too militaristic or too sure that this is what's what this is what was going to happen. Uh, he was right. So if you don't follow him and you're interested about this situation, he is certainly someone to follow. Um, this is his drawing of what he thinks the objectives are. So those arrows don't represent actually where Russia is, but it's where he sort of sees based on where Russia has deployed right now and the movements that it has made where he thinks where he sees things going. And I think it's very helpful because you can see the multiple axes here and why I'm describing this as a maximalist campaign. This is not about just extending the borders of Luhansk and Donetsk there in the eastern part of the country. This is about decapitating the Ukrainian government about making sure that you can encircle most of Ukraine's defense forces, and then also making sure that you have control of the capital. Um, I should also say, and I should have mentioned before, that one of the things that has been confirmed is that Russian airborne troops are in Kiev. They've secured at least one international airport there. That's important because those are the types of things that Russia is going to do before it, it uh, invades in mass. Um, Jack, when we were talking before and prepping for this podcast, I kind of joked you know, all of us are, I can't say all of us, I'm a nerd. So this stuff is, you know, keeps me up. I didn't really sleep last night, as you can probably tell from the bags under my eyes. But, you know, and I want to say amazing props to the journalists, especially on CNN, who are bringing us live footage of everything that's been happening in the last 24 hours. But if this invasion was advanced, uh, you wouldn't see CNN journalists um, with their hats on and with their um, their bulletproof vest kind of pointing at the panorama of the city and saying, oh, I, I hear a dull thud in the distance. <laughs> Right. This is all preparatory work for when Russia is actually going to roll in with tanks. Now, to, to your actual question, how how long can Ukraine withstand this? Um, I don't know exactly how long, but eventually they will fall. Um, Ukraine is simply outclassed in terms of training and in, in terms of materiel, in terms of numbers, in terms of quality of the forces that are on the ground. This is just really a matter of time. And unfortunately, Ukraine is going to have some really difficult decisions to make, decisions that I don't envy any political leader or any soldier or any person having to make. Because at a certain point, the, the most defensible position that Ukraine can take is to pull back into cities and to pull back into areas that are more defensible rather than meet the Russians sort of wide open in the field with their tanks and with their air support and all the things that the Russian military apparatus can bring to bear. Um, that will impose an extremely bloody cost on the Russians if Ukraine decides to do that. Urban warfare is horrible. It's block by block and it's bloody. And I mean, the US has some experience with that in Iraq. The flip side though, is that it's also deadly for civilians and it's also horrible for infrastructure and for imagining the economy once all of these things end. So right now it looks like Ukraine is doing everything it can to slow down the Russian advance. We've had reports of them using some of those anti-tank missiles that the US has provided them to stop Russian armor. Um, but this is really just a matter of time and whether it takes one day or five days or a week or two weeks, eventually Russia is going to degrade Ukraine's ability to defend itself such that Ukraine is going to have to make those difficult decisions and it'll be up to Ukraine how long this is actually going to be prolonged. But the, and, you know, uh, you were talking about how we just watched Biden speak as well. One of the things Biden said at the end of his speech was, again, he reiterated, the U.S. is not putting troops in Ukraine. NATO is not going to engage um, Russian troops in Ukraine. And without that kind of help, it's it's really inevitable that Ukraine will fall. We, we just heard that reassurance from President Biden. 
Jacob, one thing that I've heard other analysts say today is they're still talking about the possibility of a diplomatic resolution uh, as if, you know, uh, the, the West, they play nice, they do something nice, and there's just sort of a, a goodwill and suddenly Russia withdraws. I'm getting the sense from speaking with you now as well as before that you think that that likelihood is extremely narrow. Uh, am I correct about that? And if so, why? Well, as you'll remember, I thought that was the most likely scenario for the past six to eight weeks. I even went on record as saying I thought it was a 70% chance of a political or diplomatic solution and a 30% chance of the invasion that we're seeing currently. Um, the problem with um, a diplomatic solution here is I, I don't see how that happens anymore. All the old, and we talked about this on, on the podcast with you a couple of days ago, Minsk and all the negotiation protocols and the diplomatic processes that were running before, they're all gone. They were gone the moment that Donetsk and Luhansk were recognized as independent, let alone sort of a broader Russian invasion here. And Sorry, I Jacob, also, I can interrupt. Oh, uh, what What is, uh, when you say Minsk, and also because I was reading on Pravda, which is the Russian sort of state media, they were saying the Minsk Accord is no more. So what is Minsk? What did it say? And now that it's no longer in play, why is that significant? Minsk, the Minsk Protocol, well, so Minsk is the is a city in Belarus, but it uh, it was the, the Minsk Accords were the agreement between Ukraine, Russia, Germany, France, some of the other major players here after the 2014 revolution that established a negotiating framework between Ukraine and Russia going forward. And the idea was in Minsk was basically that Ukraine was going to be federalized, that Donetsk and Luhansk were going to remain a part of Ukraine, but they were going to be given autonomy and perhaps even a veto over certain aspects or even all of Ukrainian foreign policy. That is what Russia wanted. It pursued negotiations along that track for years and felt like it wasn't getting any progress. So that's all gone. That, dip, that was the main framework for a diplomatic solution, and it's kind of out the door. If you want a geopolitical metaphor for that, think of um, the, Camp, the Camp David II Accords in the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations of the late 90s. Um, it, it would be as if you just lit the Camp David Accords on fire in the middle of negotiations. That's kind of the, the effect of what happened there um, when you got rid of Minsk. Um, but uh, to your other point about... Um, you know, where this is kind of, whether there can be a diplomatic resolution from here, I don't see it. And the reason is, the, the reason that I thought a diplomatic solution was um, was likely in the beginning was because I thought it was the best way for Russia to achieve its national interests. I still think on paper it would have been. I think Putin has actually made a pretty colossal long-term mistake here. But the same thing that made me think that Russia was going to go diplomatic solution also tells me that now that it has burned the diplomatic solution and it's deployed this level of force, inside of Ukraine, they're not going to stop. The geopolitical imperative is very clear and it's the same. And I'm glad you brought that map up you're showing right now. It's about getting to the Carpathian Mountains. Um, if I can quote uh, Catherine the Great, an old Russian empress from the 18th century, the only way Russia can defend itself is to expand. And it has to expand as far as it can. And the Carpathian Mountains is the best place for Russia to defend itself on the northern European plain a little bit better. And that's the border of Ukraine. So I don't see Russia stopping at all here. I don't take anything out of Russia seriously anymore. I mean, you, uh, you know, every step of the way, Russia has said, OK, we're doing this, but you know, we're not going to go this far. Or, yes, we've decided to recognize Donetsk and Luhansk, but we want to negotiate. Uh, in Putin's speech last night, he said, yes, we're protecting Donbass, but we don't want to occup occupy the country. I I'm done with the buts. Um, it's, it's very clear that what Russia wants to do is it wants to have its political influence extend throughout the Carpathians, and it is doing that at gunpoint, not at the negotiating table. Mm. And Joko, 
Jacob, one thing you pointed out to me was the demographics of Ukraine. And uh, this is a image showing, I, I believe, the, the yellow is where, where troops have, uh, Russian troops have already invaded. But can you just talk about how, what the demographics are of in the east, in the middle, and then in the west as well, and how that shapes uh, um, the influence uh, within, within the country, as well as people's uh, being receptive or not being receptive to a Russian invasion, not being receptive being a total un understatement, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give myself the liberty of giving you a slightly philosophical answer to that question, because um, ultimately all nation states are artificial. Some are more artificial than others, and sometimes national identity becomes more real for others, and sometimes national identity falls apart. So I, I'm not saying that Ukraine is not a nation or that its national identity is not mature when I say what I'm about to say. But Ukraine really is a collection of a lot of different ethnic groups and nationalities. Um, Ukraine, in some ways, you kind of smush together a bunch of different Slavic populations and you get Ukraine's population. So if you look at Ukraine's demographics, some areas, they're Russian speaking, they are pro-Russian, they want to be part of Russia. That's Donetsk, Luhansk, even parts of Crimea. Other parts of Ukraine are Polish or are Romanian or are Hungary. And Ukraine has had political issues with all three of those countries, not the sort that they've had with Russia, but over those countries feeling like um, those ethnic groups were not being treated well in Ukraine. And then you have the Ukrainian national identity itself. Um, so just always think in terms of the fact that there are no monoliths. Not every single person in Ukraine feels the same way. There are probably some pro-Kiev, pro-Western voices in Donetsk and Luhansk. Sucks to be them. I'd advise they get out. There are also probably some pro-Russian voices in Kiev. You know, nothing is completely monolithic. But broadly speaking, the further east you go in Ukraine, the more pro-Russian and the more Russian speaking you're talking about. So in some ways, the areas where Russia has expanded so far on this map, if you put that map right over to a demographic and ethnic profile map of Ukraine, you'd see that those are the areas where the Russian speakers are most concentrated. And that's important, again, because it goes to what I'm talking about. We're in the initial phases of the operation. Um, Russia is really just consolidating control in Ukraine where it's easy for Russia to do so. This is going to get real when you see Russian tanks and Russian armor with Russian air support rolling into those areas where there are hostile elements. And then we'll really know just what kind of resistance Ukraine can put up and how long they can slow down the Russian advance. If And if your analysis is right, Jacob, that this is kind of a slow moving train wreck that has an end that is very likely and the, the result of a resolution that is diplomatic uh, is very slim. If you're right, then uh, what do you think? What does that say about the state of financial markets, where we had an extreme financial stress that the markets have been having for a, a few weeks now? The price of Brent oil surging well above $100, all equity markets selling off and selling off hard, and the, the Russian ruble depreciating, uh, the Russian credit default swap, uh, you know, uh, uh, cost to insure Russian bonds exploding higher, you know, way above 2014 levels. Uh, but we can put up a chart, a chart of that la uh, later, as, uh, and well as Russian bonds um, selling off. Do you think that the volatility, vol volatility is always a politically correct word for things go down. Do you think the volatility that we've seen today is kind of, you know, yeah, today's day one. Uh, there's there's going to be four weeks of this. I don't know exactly how long it's going to last, but like I said, I think we're at the beginning phases here. I think people should not consider that, you know, the main shock and awe happened last night and that now we're going to get back into a new normal. This is going to get worse, I think, before it gets better. And while there has been carnage in markets, I think a lot of that, if, if you want to take a silver lining from it, is panic because the market tends to panic when there's any uncertainty. And this is a major military operation. We haven't seen 
anything like this in Europe, um, maybe since Georgia in 2008, although that was a lot kind of smaller scale than what Russia's contemplating and actually doing here right now. Um, I will tell you, you might remember, you know, I'm director at, of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Uh, we had a small position in, in Russian equities because we thought the risk reward of um, Russia uh, going for a diplomatic solution was going to be good. We got out of that position um, early this morning, but we had hedged that with gold as our largest position. Uh, we've added now to positions in emerging market economies that export a lot of the commodities where I think we're going to see price spikes. Um, so I think there are places in this market to find opportunity. I would caution people in the same way that I caution you not to believe everything you read, and especially in the fog of war and the panic and the media reports that are coming out. Don't also just throw up your hands here and think that the market is going to bounce back really easily or is just going to continue down into a never-ending doom cycle of despair all the way down to you know a 50% correction. Like Those things aren't probably what's going to happen. And eventually, the human psyche will get used to what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better is the short answer to your question. Mm. And a key theme there is commodity prices. The fact that Russia is a huge exporter of wheat, of oil, of natural gas. Someone was even talking about uh, nat rare rare earths. Uh, can, you, can you talk about the role that, that Russia has and to what degree did the sanctions that Boris Johnson and President Joe Biden just levied against Russia to what degree will those cause, uh, you know, the already strained energy markets, particularly in Europe, to to have even more severe distress? Well, yeah, Jack, that's why it was so important that we waited for Biden to speak before we got on here. And your list your listeners are a little bit lucky or unlucky, depending on your point of view. And that you know, I literally just heard Biden say what he said, so I haven't even read the White House readout. But it sounded to me, based on what Biden said that the toughest sanctions, which would have been cuffing, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT global payments um, system, and from any sanctions that directly target Russia's energy exports, those are off the table. And he very specifically said, no, we want to ensure stability of energy supply. We're not going after that right now. And he tried to say in the question and answer, we're, we're going after these big Russian banks. We're freezing their assets. That's going to be worse. Yeah, maybe long term. But if you're worried about commodities right now, you're worried about whether Russian natural gas is going to keep flowing to Europe. You're worried about whether Russian oil barrels are still going to be sold in the global marketplace. And it seemed to me that Biden was saying they're not going after that quite yet. Um, people are still going to be freaked out, and rightfully so. I mean, Russia is an incredibly important player in the global energy production matrix, and it's especially important for Europe. But I think you're seeing here part of the hedging that both Europe and the United States have to do. They want to impose real costs on Russia, um, but they can't go too far because of their dependence on Russian energy. The interesting question is um, just how much is Russia willing to screw with the West here? Are they just going to take the sanctions but take Ukraine and that's the most important thing? Or are they going to start jerking Europe's chain around and start restricting natural gas supplies if they do something that Russia doesn't like, or if they don't start treating Russia the way that Russia feels like it needs to be treated. There's a lot of that in there. So there's a great deal of energy uncertainty in the market that I think we're going to have to watch going forward. The one that is being less talked about, um, and so it is the one that I'll emphasize, because I think everybody's kind of aware of the energy issues. Biden mentioned them specifically. I'm much more interested in the agricultural commodities. Uh, both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of global cereals. Uh, something like 25% of global wheat exports, 25% of global barley exports. Ukraine's the fourth largest corn exporter in the country. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things to watch there going forward. I saw Ukraine shut down their ports 
So none of the Ukrainian exports are getting out. I don't expect them to get out anytime soon. Their Navy's already been, what, what, what they had of a Navy's already been decimated by the Russians. The Russians seem to be keeping things going, um, but the Egyptians canceled a wheat tender of theirs. I was reading just before we got on. We saw China, which had actually been restricting uh, imports of Russian wheat for um, sanitary conditions or for some reason, uh, waive those conditions and is now importing lots of Russian wheat. So they're trying to help out the Russians there. And then the other key flashpoint that I'm watching going forward is what is Turkey going to do? Because Turkey sits right there at the Bosporus. That's the entrance and exit to the Black Sea. 50% of Russia's exports go out the Bosporus. Uh, 90% of Russia's agricultural exports go out the Bosporus. So Ukraine has asked Turkey to interdict Russian military ships there. If Turkey really wanted to help out, um, or if NATO really wanted to make life difficult for Russia, so that, that would be the sort of nuclear option that you would do there because you'd cripple Russia, but you would also affect global commodities markets. So I think what we're seeing here from the West, I'm, I'm laying that, I don't want to scare everybody. I just want to have everyone realize what's at stake. Um, that's not what's being talked about right now. Uh, Biden is clearly trying to hurt Russia as much as possible while minimizing the pain to the West, to the United States and its allies. He is not yet willing to have the West take any short-term pain in order to impose short-term pain on Russia. If Russia keeps going, if Russia does things that the United States feels it needs to respond to, if you start getting these cyber attacks that both sides have been warning about, there is actually still room for this to get a lot worse. But I came out of Biden's comments thinking, okay, there's a lot that's scary here. There's a lot of uncertainty, but a lot of these commodities, a lot of these markets, they're trying to thread the needle here and make sure that those trade flows keep going M much harder than it sounds. But that seems to be what they're going to try to do, at least at the start. I think Biden definitely struck that tone and Biden and Boris Johnson were very much in sync. But maybe one discordant note in their talks was, I think, uh, uh, Boris Johnson, and perhaps it was just rhetoric, it was just a throwaway line, but he did say, we will reduce our dependence on Russian energy. And he made a, a he said, he pretty much said the exact opposite of Biden and saying, you know, we don't really, we don't really care about, about well, is, is it, you would think it would be the opposite, right? That the United, in the United States, they would uh, be more willing to impose sanctions on energy because, you know, the US is an energy powerhouse and, and Europe isn't. But uh, did, you, did you catch that? Or was that just a throwaway line from, from Boris? Boris Johnson is a showman. Uh, I say that uh, no pejorative judgment. I mean, this is the guy who you know goes on the zip line and waves his two British flags around with a helmet on. Like he, he's a showman, and it's very easy for him to say that. He doesn't have to worry about that. The UK is not part of the European Union anymore, and this was part of why the pro-Brexit voices wanted that. Um, the UK is not. I mean, it, it certainly has some dependencies on Russia, but it's not to the same level that the rest of Europe does. It's not the same level that Germany has dependence uh, on Russia for energy. So it's fine for Prime Minister Johnson to go out there and say, I want to look really tough and I want to sound really tough. It's also a fact that the UK has been one of the prime places for Russian oligarchs to park their assets overseas and that the UK has been a very friendly place for Russians to go for years. And that, sure, Johnson has said things to threaten that going forward as a result, but that it's mostly been threats. The US is really thinking in terms of its transatlantic partnership, both with the UK and with Europe. And one of the things Biden has done since day one in office is try and improve the relationship with the European Union, which was really damaged under the Trump administration. And he's trying to let Germany and France and Poland and Romania and the Baltics know that the U.S. is taking their concerns into account and that the U.S. is going to be there and have their back and wants that relationship going forward. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to Johnson. I think he's ultimately going to um, 
he's going to go along with the Alliance Network. It actually looks good for him because he, I, I saw, he actually said, yeah, we should be considering Swift. Why don't we knock these guys off Swift? That's nice. He gets to look really tough without actually have to doing that because he knows that France and Germany and some of the, some of these other states don't want to do that. So there's a lot of political showmanship here to come from a lot of different actors. And that's most of what I take from Johnson at this point. Mm. Thanks for laying that out. Jacob, could you explain what's been going on with Russian bonds? I've seen reports you know, from the Financial Times that the U.S. is banning the trading of, uh, of Russian bonds in secondary markets. They've already banned uh, primary markets. Primary market is when you know I issue a bond to you, Jacob, and you buy it, and that's primary. Secondary is when you sell it to someone else. Uh, what, what is the significance of that? And what degree does Russia actually use its bond market to fund it's it's government expenditures you know if it runs a huge government surplus you really don't need to it's kind of you know bond market is sort of just a there there to, to provide stability yeah there's a reason that was in the first round of sanctions <laughs> first the first rounds of sanctions were a slap on the wrist um i don't know that i would call these next i mean these these next round of sanctions it was more than a slap on the wrist it was not the nuclear option it, it was not going kind of 100 percent, but they're more serious and sorry what, I, what 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 would be going 100 percent? swift Oh yeah, cut them off from SWIFT, sanctions on anyone that imports Russian energy, um, block, you know, uh, try and make sure that anybody who imports Russian commodities is going to face sanctions. I mean, think think about the, the level of um, US sanctions towards Iran and North Korea. That's what a nuclear option of sanctions looks like. We're not even close to that yet. And again, that they're, that's because of constraints. There are certain things that the United States can't do even if it wants to do. I bet you in his heart of hearts, Biden wants to go up there and say, yes, the U.S. stands up to bullies. And that is why I will crush <laughs> Russia's economy by making sure they can't sell anything. I'm sure that in his heart of hearts, that's what he wants. He can't do that because if he does that, um, the world is going to go nuts and a lot of U.S. allies are going to suffer and the U.S. is going to suffer, too. So like I say, he's going to thread that needle. The other thing to keep in mind here uh, is, like I said, things could get worse and things probably are going to get worse. So you don't want to throw everything at the wall right now. You want to hold some things in reserve so that if Russia, for the record, I don't think this, this is going to happen, but let's have a hypothetical. Uh, it's been out there on rumors and social media that maybe Russia would go to Moldova next. Well, you want to make sure you have some quivers still that you can use in case Russia does something even beyond the pale, because if you exhaust all of your sanctions, um, then you're, the only thing left to you is military action or to look completely inept. So again, that's also one of the reasons when you looked at the reports for the hours going into Biden's press conference, there were lots of leaks about what he was considering. The Wall Street Journal said he's thinking about SWIFT. Uh, I believe NBC said something about he's thinking about cyber attacks and what you know the United States is going to do on a cyber level to Russia. Those were all things to let people know, hey, there are things on the table. The U.S. hasn't done anything yet. Biden's really thinking tough. But then he kind of displayed, OK, I've, I've decided to water those down a little bit so I have a little bit more breathing room. And one thing I noticed between both uh, Boris Johnson and President Biden is they both talked, and this is probably the few moments in their speeches where they both were happy about the pain in the uh, Russian stock market. Uh, whether you look at the index, I'm actually going to uh, put up a chart now. Mm -hmm. uh, just a you know a huge sell-off, something like a 27% sell-off uh, in the stock market. And then if we actually look at what we have going on here. Um, you know, uh, the spare bank of Russia, a huge bank in Russia, down 66%. Um, all of these countries, Luke Oil, down 33%. You know, mo most of these companies are uh, Russian and they are down a huge, huge amount. Um, so to what degree is that 
from the lens of Western leaders something that is a desired outcome? I'm sure it doesn't hurt. I mean, every symbolic thing you can do right now to impose pain on Russia is good. I, I think also, though, I mean, keep in mind, I think Biden did a very good job of, of kind of making these things separate. There's the Russian government and then there's the Russian people. Um, so you want to go after, and this is why the sanctions are directed, as he talked about, at the Russian oligarchs who profit from Russia's system by the things that Russia is doing. There, you don't want to go too far and actually you know, take this out on the Russian people. Now, that's a very fine line. At a certain point, there's going to be collateral damage. But I think that's something to keep in mind. And, and you're also right. I mean, the Russian market's completely tanked. Uh, Moscow had to halt trading, I think, for two hours last night as the military operation was getting underway. If you look at a chart, though, of the Russian stock market, you'll see that it still really hasn't recovered since the 2008 invasion of Georgia. Of course, the 2008 financial crisis was in there, too. Um, but, you know, Russian stocks, I think, are still almost 50 percent down from that point. And if you look at 2008, there was a huge drop. There was a huge drop in 2014 when they annexed Crimea. And now we're getting another drop here. I say all that to say in each one of those instances, I mean, people thought the world was falling apart at the time. And then people got adjusted to the new normal. And then the Russian market started to pick up and start going again. And for as long as Russia is the economic player that it is in the world right now, and for as long as those European powers have to constrain themselves from going all out because they can't afford to not import Russian energy, there's going to be a limit on it. And there's going to be ways that Russia can grow. The other thing we haven't talked about here is that Russia really is thinking in terms of its relationships with China and India as where its future is. So right now, it doesn't have the pipeline infrastructure to really have China take a lot of the, the energy that it exports to Europe, but it's building those things. And it's obviously forging a closer relationship with China in the future. So at the same time that Europe is going to be trying to wean itself off of Russia, you'll see Russia trying to pivot to India, to, to China, to some of these other countries in Asia that are going to be energy hungry in the future. Um, I went a little off track there of your question, though. I, I don't think the the goal was to to send the Russian stock market into a spiral. But sure, it's it's it, anything that a political leader in the West right now can say, yes, we did this sanction and it hurt Russia this way. That's something they're going to want to talk about. And they're want to they're going to want to use it as an example of how tough they're being on Russia. And how targeted can those sanctions be against those oligarchs? I've, I've heard many press uh, you know, spokespeople as well as leaders say we're, we're targeting oligarchs. So Putin Putin's money is is gone, you know, but we're not going to harm the people of Russia. To, can you talk about the mechanism by which they do that? I, I heard uh, Boris Johnson talk about freezing assets. And, and, and to what degree is that sort of just a little bit of a nuance, uh, a nuisance? Uh, or is it something that, you know, really is going to bother the people in power and actually will be material in affecting th th whether they'll fold or not? With the proviso that I'm not a sanctions expert, um, but you can target them as as kind of specifically as you want to. I mean, you can get right down to making it so certain people can't do business anywhere outside of Russia. A lot of these people, though, have very nice positions in Russia. They don't necessarily want to go anywhere outside of Russia. It would be nice to, but it's not like they're going to be losing any sleep because suddenly they're not allowed to go to Cabo or something. They probably weren't going to Cabo in the first place. They have other places that they're probably going to go. Um, so th there's there are things that the United States can do, at, but the the sanctions on individual oligarchs that's much less important than the systemic thing. So it's much more important that Biden was talking about some of Russia's largest banks and about freezing their assets and about limiting Russian access to the dollar and to the euro and the yen. Like th those are the things that are really going to bite and it's going to make um, th those are things that 
the Russian people are eventually going to hold the Russian government accountable for, because that's going to be reflected in the daily lives of Russians themselves when suddenly government coffers aren't able to fund social services, and suddenly the Russian economy is 20 years behind because it doesn't have the, technologi the technological base or the industrial base to compete in the global economy right now. That's one of the reasons I think Biden was saying in his sanction speech, we're playing a long game here. Like we're not going to go for the nuclear option right now, but the sort of cumulative effect of these sanctions over the next five to 10 years, it's going to be really, really bad for Russia. And we haven't talked about this, but I mean, um, you know, I, I said it's only a matter of time, I think, before Ukraine folds. It's about how long they can kind of keep things going. In the long term, though, I don't see how Russia wins this. I think Putin has taken a short-term victory for really a long-term decision that is pretty disastrous. I mean, we saw this movie before in the Cold War. Russia couldn't hold when it extended this far, and Russia is much poorer and much more demographically unstable and much weaker than it used to be when it was the Soviet Union. So I, I think in that sense, um, the U.S. is actually on to something. Uh, if you want to make Russia less of a threat, it's not about shock and awe today. It's about making sure that in five years, Russia doesn't have the capability to even consider something like this anymore. And, and Jacob, this is a bit of an in-the-weeds question, but when you talk about the sanctions against the banks, the mm -hmm. asset freezes, what exactly happens there? And what were Russian banks, like let's say Spare Bank of Russia, which is down 66% as compared to yesterday, what can't Sparebank do today that it could do yesterday? And how does that hurt the people of Russia too? Yeah, again, not, not a sanctions expert, so I won't pretend to be a sanctions expert. But at the simplest level, um, I, let's, let's take VTB, like the second largest bank in Russia. Let's say they have 200 billion of assets or something in the United States. Uh, those assets are frozen. They stay there. So if the market cap for some of these banks was, I, I don't know what the market caps for these banks are, but let's say the market cap is 800 billion for one of these banks and they have 200 billion of assets in the United States. If they're frozen, they, they don't get that money anymore. Like overnight, they're like, they're not worth, they're worth a quarter of what they were before. Um, Iran has extensive experience with this. Uh, one of the, th the conditions for the Iran nuclear deal in the first place was that the US was supposed to turn over tens of billions of dollars that it had frozen as part of its initial sanctions against Iran in the early and, and mid 2000s. Um, so that's, it's really as simple as um, any dollars, any assets that are in the United States, they stay there. You can't take them out and they'll stay there until the United States decides that you know, you've done whatever you need to do to satisfy what the United States wants. Hmm. Well, um... Jacob, we've got a lot, a lot of people viewing, about 400 people. Uh, wow. People have been commenting as we've been talking. We had some questions, but if, if folks uh, want a, to ask Jacob a question, please post them now, and I'll try and get them in uh, before we end this talk. Uh, Jacob, one thing I'm curious about is who is going to, if, if the Ukrainian government falls, what is going to replace them? It's not going to be Russia, right? It's going to be some sort of different regime. Uh, what is that going to look like? I'd be lying to I'd be lying to you if I told you that I knew. Um, it's it's also not a job that I imagine many people would want. Um, in every single situation like this in history, where you have an invading, occupying power, though they find collaborators that are either willing to to for their own profit or because they think that they are able to serve as an intermediary and make things better for the local population if there's sort of an adult in charge in the room. Um, but yeah, what Russia is going to be looking for is somebody that can command some level of legitimacy and respect in Ukraine and that is not going to run afoul of, of Russia's interests. Um, it's going to be very difficult. 
Um, and that's why I say like kind of long term, like Russia's in for a very difficult situation here. Um, they've turned an entire population or the entire population of Western Ukraine against them. So even if Ukraine's um, conventional defenses are not able to withstand the Russian onslaught for more than a couple of weeks maximum, um, you can have an ongoing insurgency in Ukraine indefinitely. This is a country that's larger than France in terms of total area. It's a country with over 40 million people. Um, so it's going to be very difficult to maintain that control and just drop in a leader and then go home. Like I said, this isn't the Soviet Union. You don't have um, the ideology of global communism and the, and the relative strength that the Soviets had for areas that were completely decimated by World War II and had no real appetite for resistance. You've got a Ukrainian national identity that's been really growing and becoming stronger in the last 10 years because of Russian aggression. So for all of those reasons, I think it's going to be very difficult for Russia to just pick someone and put up a mission accomplished banner and go home. I think it's really going to be, um, you know, Putin said he didn't want to occupy Ukraine. Fine, then you're going to lose it. Like the only way Russia keeps its gains right now is that it's in control and it has the monopoly of force in Kiev. So they can put whoever they want um, in charge, but that person's only going to be in charge as long as Russia guarantees them, just as Russia did for Lukashenko and Belarus, and uh, as they just did in Kazakhstan. Mm. Uh, Jacob, you know, I'm very glad that we've gone, you know, close to 40 minutes already, and we haven't yet tried to go deep inside Putin's head, which is what a lot of uh, commentators do. But you did mention you know, it's not the Soviet Union anymore. When it was the Soviet Union, they could say, oh, we are spreading, you know, the good works of the, the immortal science of Marxist-Leninism. Uh, they had an ideology. What is their ideology now? You know, the, the reasons that I could gather from uh, reading Pravda, a uh, Russian newspaper, were sort of, I mean, well, the reason that Putin said was uh, pacification and denazification. Uh, tell us what do you think he meant by that? What was he referring to? And are people sort of accepting that? You know, are, is, is that something that's palatable to, to a lot of Russians? Yeah, so there's two separate things there. And as for, you know, spending time in Putin's mind, doesn't seem like a very nice place to spend time right now, does it? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that I could handle that level of paranoia and suspicion in my own life. Um, the ideology is Russian nationalism. And that makes it both stronger and weaker than the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union really had global ambitions. Um, in the Soviet Union, Russia saw itself as the vanguard of the global proletariat and that its job was to spread that revolution throughout the world. Um, so it, it really had global aspirations. Um, Putin has defined things much more narrowly. He thinks of himself as the leader of Russians. He's a Russian nationalist. His job is to make sure that Russia um, is safe and is protected and expands to its you know, historical heritage and things like that. That is why he was not interested in annexing parts of Georgia in 2008. That's why he did not want to annex Donetsk and Luhansk. Those are independent republics. It's why he has let Belarus have the charade where they pretend to be an independent country. It's why he's not going into Central Asia and conquering. Those are not Russian countries, technically. Um, but still, there is this sort of idea of Slavic nationalism and as Russia as the protector of Slavic nationalism. And to the extent that he has an ideology, it's about protecting Russians around the world. So in the areas where there are a large number of Russians, that's a very compelling argument. It's the same sort of argument that um, Hitler made in the early 1930s. I'm gonna expand in the areas of Central Europe where there are German speakers. Those were sort of the first salvos before Hitler lost his mind and went off and thought he could conquer the world. It was supposed to be about, no, we're going to protect the Germans. 
Um, so it, Russian nationalism is the ideology. Denazification is not the ideology. That is Putin telling you he thinks the Ukrainian government is illegitimate. It was in some ways, I won't say it was the scariest part of his speech yesterday, because the scariest part was when he said, we have nuclear weapons. So anybody who tries to interfere, you just remember how we have nuclear weapons. Like that was pretty dark. But the second scariest thing, and the scariest thing if I was a Ukrainian, was him saying that he wants to denazify the Ukrainian government, because that's him saying, your government is run by a bunch of Nazis. I don't recognize them. They're committing genocide against the Russians. They must be removed. So he's kind of betraying what his goal is going to be, which is regime change in Ukraine by saying denazification. The other thing to keep in mind, and this goes to kind of ideological history in general, which is that even though Russia is no longer communist and doesn't pretend to be, um, back in the day, fascism and communism were the two real competing ideologies. It didn't start as communism versus liberalism. That sort of happened after World War II. Um, at the time in Europe in the 1920s, 30s, it was fascism versus communism. And so those two sides have a propensity to hate each other. And for, a gen for multiple generations, Russians and people who lived in Soviet lands were taught a version of history where the fascists caused all the problems and that really the West, they were just the extension of the fascists, um, et cetera. So th that's why he's going after the quote unquote Nazis in Ukraine. It's, it's related to his Russian nationalist ideology, but it's more about justifying political moves. His ideology is more just straight nationalism. Hmm. We've got a great question here. Does Putin have support for this move? Is there any chance that popular opinion could turn against him? This is a great question. And uh, this is a third world problem I'm about to share with you right now. But I'm really sad that I probably won't be going back to Moscow anytime soon to ask some of my friends there what they think about this, because I got used to going to Moscow fairly often in, in recent years. Um, I can tell you that some of the Russian geopolitical analysts, the versions of me that I keep in touch with in Russia, um, have expressed surprise. Um, they didn't think that this is what was going to happen. They, I think, also see that if you're just doing the pure geopolitics, take the ideology, take the paranoia, take all of that out, this doesn't make sense from a purely geopolitical standpoint. You're actually taking a major risk here that maybe you don't want to take. So for people who think strategically in Russia, I think this is probably going to look very bad. I also don't think that Russians, um, this, certainly younger Russians, care that much. This cuts both ways. Um, lots of, um, and I guess they're not even young anymore, but millennials don't remember the Cold War. They didn't grow up with the Cold War. They don't think of Russia as the grand enemy in the way that anybody who came of age in the 60s, 70s, and 80s did. The same is true of Russia. So the generation that has grown up in Russia that is turning 30 and 35 years old, they don't think of the US as this huge enemy. They want the same things that you and I want. They want the latest technology. They want a cool smartphone. They want to drive a car. They want to have a, a villa or go on vacation or do any of these other things. And all of this is going to be at risk uh, because of what the Russian government is doing. So I have a hard time imagining that the Russian people, especially once the sanctions start to bite, are going to be okay with this. The flip side is that you know Putin has presided over a period of overall domestic stability in Russia. And I don't think he would have taken this move unless most of the upper echelons of the Russian government were behind him. So he has enough buy-in to think that he can handle this right now. But um, you know, medium to long term, he should be very, very concerned about how Russia's economy is going to function here if it's going to isolate itself and hive itself off from the rest of the world the way that it probably will be as a result of this. Talking about hiving off the Russian economy, we've got two very good and very related questions. Uh, Issy wants to know, with big banks, excuse me, with big Russian banks being sanctioned, 
what does that mean for cryptocurrency? And then Spencer really puts it to a point, says, how will Russian find an alternative to the SWIFT system after the sanctions? And will Bitcoin be an option? Ah, well, lost in all this stuff about Ukraine was that um, the Russian Central Bank put out a 30 or 40 page report. I'm, I've lost all sense of space time. I can't remember if it was last month or two weeks ago, whatever, uh, but put out a report about why the Russian government should ban cryptocurrency in general and about the, the systemic threat to the Russian financial system that cryptocurrency imposed. And the Russian government post uh, passed many of those restrictions in the last week or two. Um, so Russia views Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a threat. It's developing a digital ruble to try and push it out. It's kind of the same playbook that, that China has been using. Um, in terms of an alternative to SWIFT, Russia's been trying to build one and been trying to get people to use it. Not that many people use it. I think there's one Chinese bank that's using it right now. So they have some kind of rudimentary system that maybe if SWIFT got triggered, they can try and go to, but it's not ready. Um, keep in mind that um, up until the last couple of years, the Russian internet could have been brought down if the United States wanted it to. What Russia's had to start doing is actually make its network self-sufficient, and then it can start going to some of those more sophisticated, higher order of operation things about payment systems and things like that. So they have a domestic indigenous alternative. I doubt it's particularly good. I wouldn't want to dust it off if I was them, but they've been thinking about that and they sort of have it there. And in terms of crypto, um, you know, most authoritarian governments don't like cryptocurrency because they want control. Um, and you've seen that in China. You've seen that in Russia. Um, I don't view crypto. I, I think Russia views crypto as a threat, not as anything it can use to get around sanctions. Mm. Uh, thanks for explaining that. Um, we're going to wrap it up soon. So if anyone has a, a final question for, for Jacob, uh, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. Jacob, I guess hmm, for my final question that I, I, I have a final question. The audience has a final question. My, okay. my final question. Let's see. Probably, probably would be about, and this is obviously very hard to answer about a timeline. Um, you know, how swiftly do you think Russia will topple the Ukrainian regime? And I know you, there's a, a bunch of variables that you say. Oh, is the are they going to fight in, in the open plains, or are they going to fight in the cities? And that cities is a lot bloodier. Uh, so maybe we'll go in both of those variables, and then whatever other variables, whatever toggles you want to switch. Uh, uh, but yeah, like is this is this going to be something about you know in October Russia is still invading Ukraine, or is this going to be something that you know Ru Russia could topple the regime by by later next week? It's a good question. Um, I think that there's there's not going to, and I think a lot of people want this. They want to be there to be a moment when this is all going to be over. It's not going to all be over anytime soon. I do think the sort of invasion phase, the conquest phase, whatever you want to call it, uh, we're on the order of weeks. Could it take a month or two? Maybe, but I sort of think we're in that three to four week timeline for when Russia is going to actually have the monopoly of force inside Ukrainian territory. It could be even sooner uh, for a lot of the variables that we've already talked about. Uh, but long term, holding Ukraine, propping up a government that Russia likes, like I said, that process is going to take a long time. And I don't think Russia, I mean, Russia will probably make a big show of its soldiers coming home. It did that in Syria. It said it brought its soldiers home. It just kept them there the whole time because it had to keep the Assad regime in power. Um, so, I mean, th that's why I say I think Putin maybe has bitten off a little bit more than Russia can chew, because I don't think he can just pick someone with enough domestic legitimacy and leave them there. He is going to have to, in the same way that he has kept Lukashenko in power, um, make sure that the, the Russian military is there to support whatever leader is replaced. And unlike Belarus and unlike Kazakhstan, uh, Ukraine is a large country with tens of millions of people who already were suspicious and angry at Putin and will be even more so after the destruction and death that happens as a result of this invasion. Mm.
Thanks for that. Uh, we've got a beautifully broad question from Ray who says, Macro, what are your thoughts? How will this play out? Uh, so you can take that direction, you know, just and take take that direction and take a walk with it. But maybe maybe I'll put a little flavor on it, which is uh, the how the shipping crisis, the fact that shipping rates they've gone down, but you know they're causing inflation and and there's people demanding way too many goods. Supply there's a supply chain crisis. To what degree uh, does this exacerbate that because of perhaps blockades of, of Ukrainian ports? Yeah, Ray, thank you for making me want to light myself on fire with that question. That was good. Um, why why I, do I want to light you on fire? Well, because it's just like, it's like, why is the sky blue? Like, what what is what is Putin <laughs> going to have for breakfast tomorrow? What macro? Tell me what your thoughts are. Oh, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's so vague. Uh, but Although it, I say, I, when, you're, when you're interviewing people, sometimes open-ended questions can be good, you know? Because it's just like, you let the guest walk, you know? If someone's... <laughs> I was going to compare, compare a, a, a guest to a dog, which is not rude. But like, when you're walking a dog, like the dog wants to go where it wants to go. You should let it go, you know? <laughs> I, I guess so, though. Sometimes you start walking in circles. It, it does give you a, a, a blank canvas to paint on. I, I've kind of already alluded to this at the macro view. So at Cognitive Investments, like our largest position has been gold. E even though we thought the diplomatic solution was the most likely, we knew that there was another possibility here and that the other shoe could drop. So, I mean, the, the, the way to position yourself right now, I think, Gold is really interesting, and you're seeing that with gold doing well and Bitcoin and some of these other cryptos going down. Um, energy is obviously a big one and where we've been exposed as well, whether it's oil, natural gas, coal, kind of across the spectrum. I mean, there's going to be a lot of headwinds there. And then the other commodities markets where Russia is deeply involved are places like wheat, like corn, like barley. Um, nickel is a really interesting one to watch because nickel is crucial to making stainless steel appliances. It's crucial to um, batteries and all the Teslas that everybody wants to drive around. Uh, Russia is a top exporter of that. Um, maybe the one that concerns me the most, and there are different ways to play this, but both Russia and Belarus are major exporters of fertilizers. Um, and Belarus actually already declared force majeure on its fertilizer exports last week before any of these things went wrong and fertilizer prices were already very high. So if you're looking at the macro situation, I think what you're interested in is you're interested in things like gold, like energy, you're interested in emerging market economies that export some of the commodities that I'm talking about. So if you've got countries like Chile that have lots of fertilizers or copper or lithium, or if you have um, countries like Brazil that also export things like soybeans and wheat and corn, they have drought problems there, but you know, overall that that's the profile, I think of the type of, um, macro environment that you're looking to take advantage of based on what's going on right now. Mm. I'll uh, throw a final thing at you, which is someone, uh, name dropped the, you know, pretty niche metal, uh, palladium. So we'll, what do you think about that? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, we're in the platinum group metals right now, and Russia is a major exporter of platinum group metals. I mean, this, I could do a whole conversation with you just on this about how, you know, sort of the US mining industry is going to radically transform here over the next five to 10 years. Um, because, you know, for a long time, China has been the dominant player in rare earth elements, and Russia has been a dominant player in platinum group metals. Um, and you know, the, the U.S. has the capacity and the resources to mine these things and refine them itself. It just it didn't have to anymore because that was the beauty of globalization. Let the Chinese destroy their environment by refining rare earth elements for cheap. Let Russia, you know, dig up and strip mine its entire country because they want to dig in the ground for these things that they sell to us. And then we turn into iPhones that we charge a premium for sort of thing. Um, that's all going to change. And, and maybe I'm actually glad you kind of ended with this because from the real macro perspective, this is the way to think about this. 
we're going from a unipolar world where the United States was the dominant power to a multipolar world where you're going to have a lot of different power centers and sphere of influences around the world. And that's not the type of process that just kind of happens smoothly in a linear process. You kind of go on for a period of time and then you get a sharp disruption like the one that we just got and you get a disconnection and then you get things kind of scurrying around and trying to get back to it. So I think in general, this is going to be uh, give a tailwind to miners and folks that are in the United States or in other countries that have these resources and see, oh, like globalization is receding. We're going through a globalization recession, but maybe I could be the palladium uh, provider for the American sphere of influence. Or if I'm Russia, hey, maybe I can use my wheat exports uh, to guarantee the food security of Central Asia because they have water problems and they're having problems with food production. So instead of exporting the wheat abroad, okay, we're now going to use the wheat and make sure that Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, all these other stands uh, kind of stay on our side. So I think it, I think in terms of you know the, the palladium question really opens the door to what does a multipolar world, what does a multipolar world actually look like? And it means five, 10 years from now that some enterprising young person or company is going to be filling the gap for for palladium that is currently sourced from Russia. The difficult thing for markets and the reason markets are sharply down is because that doesn't happen overnight. And in the meantime, the economy still has to run and there's going to be significant disruptions and increased demand in an already inflationary inflationary environment. So in our last podcast, Jack, we talked about how I sort of thought towards the end of the decade, which is a long time from now. I got some flack on Twitter for saying this. By the end of the decade, we're probably looking at some deflationary forces because of some of the things that I'm talking about. But right now, this is all going to support rising energy prices, rising commodity prices, um, and how bad it gets really is, is going to be determined by how bad things get, at least in this opening salvo between Russia and Ukraine. And it's a great spot to end. How? What are you looking for as a sign that these, these sanctions will get very serious and that SWIFT will be shut down. No Russian natural gas or oil will be allowed to be imported legally into to Europe or the U.S. What are you seeing? You know, uh, you know, how are you and how are you positioning? Like, when that happens, how is that going to change your framework? Are you going to get you know even more constructive on these on these commodities? Do you think that the, you know, oil oil three hundred dollars a barrel, um, which it sounds like we're not quite there yet. How how are you? What's going to take for you to get there? What are you going to have to see? Uh, I guess there are three things that I would watch for going forward. Um, the first is how bad things get in Ukraine, um, because if things get really, really bad in Ukraine or, and like I said, we're in a war. So if something unexpected happens, if somebody makes a miscalculation, if a missile accidentally falls in Poland, there are lots of ways that war can spiral out of control. It's one of the reasons strategists like me try to avoid war at all costs, because once you're in a war, you lose a factor of control. Things can happen beyond your control that geopolitics and the nicest analysis and methodologies in the world have nothing to do with because something as simple as somebody made a mistake on the ground or something blew up when it wasn't supposed to happen. So we have to kind of keep an eye on that. Um, the Another geopolitical flashpoint um, and geopolitical wildcard here is what is Turkey going to do? Because Turkey has been marching to the beat of its own drum. It's been kind of splitting the difference between East and West and Russia and the United States and playing all sides. The reason Russia and Turkey have had a long-standing alliance and relationship is because Turkey controls the Bosporus. Um, it's that that shared and mutual fear of Russia and wanting to hem Russia in um, is what makes the U.S.-Turkey relationship stronger. 
how's Turkey going to, and Turkey was also shipping military hardware to Ukraine. They were talking up how they were giving Ukraine these drones, which maybe they'll help a little bit. I don't know. I think the Russians have already bombed the, the drone making uh, factories that they put there. Uh, but what is Turkey going to do? Is Turkey going to shut down the Bosporus? Are they going to get involved? Are they going to arm the Ukrainians? Are they going to make life difficult for the Russians in the Black Sea? If, if you start to see that, suddenly we're talking about, okay, this is not a temporary disruption. We've got a long-term disruption brewing here for a lot of these agricultural commodities. And then the third you already sort of hit on, it's what's happening with SWIFT, what's happening with energy. Um, if Russian natural gas is still getting piped to European countries and Russians are still being paid for it, we're, we're sort of, we're not in the nuclear scenario. And yes, prices will go up and yes, volatility is up. And yes, there's a lot of uncertainty and maybe Russia's going to turn the dial when they get pissed off or maybe a pipeline gets blown up. Another example of what happens in war and prices are going to spike. But as long as the energy supplies are moving and they're being paid for, there's kind of a limit to how things go. If you get, though, a situation where, um, you know, Europe's going to say something like, no, we're not going to import your energy anymore or we're getting rid of SWIFT and we're not going to pay you uh, all that kind of stuff, or let's say pipelines start blowing up and Russia physically can't get the energy there. Sky's the limit then, man. I, I wouldn't put an upper boundary on where we can go if, if we get to that sort of world, but it behooves everybody, even Putin while he's doing his thing in Ukraine, not to get there. I mean, that's a really disastrous situation for all parties involved. Yeah, that, that definitely would be disastrous. We will be monitoring uh, this. Jacob, thanks so much for sharing your analysis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for the live stream. Uh, it's been great. Hopefully, we get to do a few more of these. And uh, you know, uh, definitely subscribe. If you like this, subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. And you can find uh, Jacob's work uh, on Twitter at Jacob Schaap. Um, Jacob, thanks so much. Thanks, Jack. And cheers, all. Take care.